See, I was thinking about that. What is it? Stranger Things show? You know, yes. that was set during the 80s. And then Papa was the one doing all these things and putting yes. Eleven in the uh, the sleep tank so she could project into this other realm. That's kind of what I was thinking the whole time you were talking. Well, I'm so glad you made that connection because as we get a little bit deeper into the cryptozoological aspects of this, you're going to see that Stranger Things is extremely relevant to this time of disclosure. There's a reason why they want us to know some of this stuff. And there is uh, one of the, um, the creatures in season one of uh, Stranger Things is going to become extremely relevant to this conversation shortly. So much disclosure going on as usual. My name's Nick. I'm the owner of Kevlar Joe's and I'm the roaster. I'm an Air Force Security Forces veteran, a dad to three wild boys and a husband to my wife, Crystal, and a coffee enthusiast. From a family in a small town in Missouri, we started with the simple idea of crafting a perfectly bold cup of coffee. Inspired by wellness and countless pots of stale coffee while deployed, we wanted to craft a bold, clean, and smooth coffee. So we did. And we realized we wanted to share this coffee with our friends. Lord knows we could all use a good cup of coffee right about now. From the farm to your coffee cup, there's nothing like a good, well-crafted, and bold cup of coffee. No matter what time of the day, it's there to pick you up motivate you and relax you we hope you enjoy our coffee be bold be humble be kevlar and you can find kevlar joe's coffee company anytime you want at www.kevlarjoe.com all things continually lead back to serpents dragons fairies nephilim and fallen angels in the distance looms a mystical mountain. As Mike Kaiser used to say, if it's in the Bible and it's weird, it's probably important. At its peak, a great fire burns, concealing the Prometheus lens. This, this development of this knowledge that's being talked about within the mystery schools. An ancient artifact said to reveal the hidden truth within a deliberately darkened world. There is a hidden history that's been deliberately obfuscated from the peoples of the world. Join us as we travel and explore the vast unknown. It's a hero's journey with dragons to slay, damsels to save, and innumerable treasures to hoard. Torches high. The Smithsonian, they'd call wind of a giant skeleton. They would send their agents out to get it. But it takes courage to move forward, to move out of the shadows, out of the uh, unreality that we think of as reality. We are all on the hero's journey. Mankind has been in contact with and influenced by extraterrestrials. Leave the Sitchin mound of bull feathers out of it. You know, look at it from a different perspective. A different perspective. Different perspective. What's happening? What's up? Hold out your glass because we're about to fill it up. Welcome to the Prometheus Lens Podcast, where the conversations are always enlightening. Uh, this is the show that we use the allegory for the Prometheus Lens just to take a second look at everything. I'm your host, Justin. You may know me from my works with the Dig Bible Podcast. This is my solo project. If you've clicked on the link, then you must be curious. What is Loosh? You know, you've heard about during the uh, last 2020 elections, you know, with some of the Q stuff about, you know, the drinking of the blood and, and inducing fear and vampires and even uh, 
Nightmare on Elm Street. You know, there's many correlations that you see with this. So we're going to dive into this. And I've seen no one better to dive into this subject matter with than Vicki Joy Anderson, the author of the book, They Only Come Out at Night. So Vicki, thank you for coming on. And I'm just, uh, I'm ready for this. I've been waiting for several weeks to dive into this subject with you. Thank you for coming on. Absolutely. Thanks for having me on, Justin. I'm excited too, because even though I mentioned this in chapter three of my book, I very infrequently get to say much more than two or three sentences about it, if anything at all. So to deep dive into it, this is going to be great. Yeah, that was one of the chapters. Honestly, it just really intrigued me and all these light bulbs and the sparks were going off in my head and I was just making connections here, there, everywhere. And I was like, ah, oh, I have to talk to her. <laughs> I have to talk to her. <laughs> Well, for those that uh, aren't familiar with you, Vicki, just give us an introduction, who you are and uh, interests, hobbies, likes, dislikes, uh, what's your zodiac, what's your sign, <laughs> do you like walks on the beach, you know, give us the information. Absolutely. Uh, my name is Vicki Joy and I am a writer, author, researcher, poet. I love to write poetry. Unfortunately, not too many people like to read it anymore, but I, I'm still churning it out if you're interested. But uh, I love writing uh, about fringe and conspiratorial type of things, but from not a Christian perspective, but from a biblical perspective. I love diving in and getting down to the culture and the context and the history and the language and the geography and digging into the grammar and the etymology of the actual word of God, because it is like hunting for treasure. When you start digging and digging deeper and deeper into the layers of scripture getting into the level of context, the level of culture, all sorts of radically supernatural themes and storylines emerge. And see, that's the thing I loved about your book. You know, when you read the title, they only come out at night, you know, automatically you think, you know, the, the demonic realm. And then, you know, you see the, the subtitle about sleep paralysis, you know, the weapons of the enemy, but there's so much stuff in there. I mean, I use that book a lot just as a reference because there's so many things you talk about, you know, salt covenants, you talk about, uh, you know, blood oaths, you talk about uh, incubus and succubus, uh, the, this louche that we're about to dive into and uh, even the, the Markaba. And, that, and that's something else that, that really sparked my interest. So there's a, a lot of subject matter in there for those that have not read it, go out and check this book out. But uh, on the subject of Lush, I even asked you pre-record because I'm a redneck. I can barely speak English well, so I, I wanted to make sure I got that name right. I, you know, if it wasn't French, you know, or Lushy. You know, so. <laughs> uh, explain to the, the listeners, uh, what is Lush? So in the modern context, because this word, it does go back into the French. It does go back into the Latin. And I hope that we get to dive into that because it gets extremely interesting. So for those of you who are interested in cryptozoology, stay tuned because it's going to go down that, that rabbit hole. But anyway, uh, louche in the modern vernacular, like if we're talking about it in present day, uh, 21st century, it was originally coined in that context that we're going to be talking about by Robert Monroe. I do talk a lot about Robert Monroe in my book as well, because he was sort of the father of modern astral projection He's the one that brought it out of the realms of sort of spiritism and is the one that assisted the U.S. Army in militarizing it, and it became remote viewing. And Robert Monroe was actually a part of those conversations where that phrase remote viewing was coined. 
And they coined it because astral projection sounded too spiritual. It sounded too religious and they needed a more uh, politically correct, uh, militarized uh, term for it. So he he was back there in the 80s during the Cold War uh, behind the scenes when we were all distracted with Gorbachev's tattoo and all that stuff, right? We uh, They were uh, meeting uh, with Robert Monroe and he was teaching the U.S. military how to astral project for purposes of remote viewing. So uh, Robert Monroe coined this term louche in his Far Journeys trilogy. He wrote a trilogy of books, which is um, elaborate details about his own astral projection experiences. Extremely interesting book, uh, extremely interesting insights. I I learned things in that book about... Uh, the, the astral realm and the difference between astral dreaming and regular dreaming that I, my entire life I've never heard in all of the arcane stuff I've read. So it's a very fascinating trilogy. Understand for Christians in, in the audience that it is absolutely new age. He's not, you know, giving any sort of hat tips to Jesus Christ. But if you, if you suffer from that sort of a thing, or you're in pastoral counseling, or you're dealing with Gen Z who are are very much on this wave of reality shifting. That's the new term for this lucid dreaming and this astral projecting. It's something that you should be knowledgeable of. And Robert Monroe certainly had his, his, his uh, grasp around um, understanding that. So anyway, with that said. So he was the original Papa. He's, he's the one that came up with that term. We know there's nothing new under the sun. This sort of thing has been um, going on for centuries millennia etc etc and see i was I, thinking about that was it stranger things show you know yes. that was set during the 80s and then papa was the one doing all these things and putting yes. 11 in the uh the sleep tank so she could project into this other realm but that's kind of what i was thinking the whole time you were talking well i'm so glad you made that connection because as we get a little bit deeper into the cryptozoological aspects of this you're going to see that Stranger Things is extremely relevant to this time of disclosure. There's a reason why they want us to know some of this stuff. And there is uh, one of the um, the creatures in season one of uh, Stranger Things is going to become extremely relevant to this conversation shortly. So much disclosure going on as usual. So by way of louche, I'm going to give you guys the official dictionary definition of this. And I just want to preface this with, I'm, I'm taking this definition out of the Ascension Glossary online. And the reason I'm telling you that is, this isn't being pulled from a sci-fi book. This isn't from a fan site or a D&D fandom. This is from an Ascension Glossary where people who are dyed-in-the-wool, serious, sober-minded followers of New Age and the Ascension Doctrine go for their material. So this is very serious. It sounds completely sci-fi. If you read something like this 40 years ago, you'd be uh, probably put on uh, psychotropic medication. This is very serious. This is an actual glossary online. So here is the uh, dictionary definition from from the the, the actual professors of this religion, so to speak, um, from their own mouths. So buckle up. This gets crazy. Reversal networks are collecting life force from the collective fields of all earth inhabitants 
and producing more subtle black forces and miasma. The much sought after spiritual energy contained in these fields is called energetic louche by the cabal. In this context, louche is referred to as the emotional energy radiated by animals and humans when feeling threatened, harmed, or being killed that results in the traumatizing pain and suffering that is experienced and recorded in the body, mind, and soul. This trauma and pain gets recorded in the earth body, the physical body itself. For centuries, the NAA, which is the negative alien agenda, has developed and exploited multidimensional occult practices through reversal creation code. This has been given to secret societies and institutions for the purpose of mind control and social engineering in order to harvest negative emotional energy or louche from the masses. So it it blows my mind, Justin, that that is not some whistleblower or some Christian or religious person trying to expose the occult. This isn't some secret knowledge that's being exposed. The very people that are promulgating this are are telling you flat out that this is what we're doing. This is where we got it from. These are the people that are using it. And so usually when I try to explain to people in the new age, uh, this stuff, what's behind all of these doctrines and dogmas is the occult and the cabal. It sounds like I'm the conspiracy theorist, but this is on their own dictionary website. It truth in plain sight. And that's the thing is like you said, you know, it's kind of relevant how you were saying, if you said this thing, these things back in the sixties and seventies, you'd be put on psychotropic medicine. Well, it's kind of the same now because it's like, it's right there in the open. And most people are like, Oh, that's just crazy. Those people are kooks. Nobody believes that. And the, and the few that do, that's just a handful. But the thing is, whether if it's true or not, regardless, there's people, prominent, powerful people that believe this. And you should, in the very least, know know what they think and what they believe. I mean, yeah. That's always been my opinion. Yeah. That's why I've never been afraid to, to read morals and dogma. And some of these, you know, occult things, I get shunned, you know, by, you know, loving Christian men and women in on the Facebook communities and in my church and stuff, you know, that I shouldn't be reading these things and stuff like that. But it's like, I want to know what these people think. You know, I want to be informed. Yeah, we we are uh, required in scripture to expose the deeds of the devil. That's part of what we need to do. And This is what's terrifying to me, Justin. Every Christian on the planet can collectively agree. This is crazy. I don't believe it. But the cabal does believe it. And they have technology. They have programs. They have secret ops. And they have their access to all sorts of human beings and vulnerable people and children to carry these experiments out on. So whether you believe it or not, There are millions of people that do believe it and they're not going to stop what they're doing because you don't believe they're doing it. And it's just like the, that movie, the matrix, they were harvesting the energy of the people in the pods to, to power their civilization. And I'm not real experienced in this. That's why I wanted to talk to you and you kind of be my guide through this, but it's like my simple man theology is, if you got a, a con man that tells you, hey, I can get you $100 if you give me five. Mm-hmm. 
and you give him five and he doesn't produce the hundred dollars when he comes back around the next time and asks for five dollars you're not going to do it so if these people are continuing to do this i mean there must in my mind there must be some kind of payoff yeah yeah ab- absolutely and the thing too with this louche i mean it is they're they're just closing it in so many television programs and movies and things like that but it's it's portray- sometimes it's portrayed in a way that it's character characterized in such a way that it looks unbelievable you know not when we talk about this kind of stuff we envision like the worst of the worst we see these ancient pagan rituals with altars and the the stakes and the chalices and the the child being or the the virgin being laid upon the altar and you know all this kind of stuff and not that that stuff doesn't still go on because it does but this harvesting of louche it doesn't always have to be a uh, a drawing of blood because when they're harvesting energy and they're harvesting our attention, our focus, you know, the, the Bible even alludes to this, where, where your treasure is there, your heart will be also. And so there is this link between something that we give all of our energy to becoming part of our identity and part of who we are and part of what, what is, is driving us. It becomes fuel for us. And so when we, as we, as we continue this discussion, I don't want everyone to just be thinking about all the horror movies you saw where there's a grove of trees and all the people in black hoods are there chanting. Even television, uh, if you look into what that does to alter our brainwaves, what it does to our attention and our focus, what it does to manipulate our mind, will, and emotions, if you look how addicting it is, if you if you look at just all of the physiological changes that come over us when we're watching it, our guard is completely down. How many Christians have you heard say, oh, it's a great movie, except for, and then they name four or five scenes in it that, you know, yeah, yeah, probably. And then you watch this movie and it's filled with bloodshed, filled with revenge, revenge killings, murder, lust, lying, dishonesty, fornication. And there is, there's this aspect of vicariously participating in something where we, where we completely let our guard down and we're able to vicariously enjoy and even root for things that in real life we would never participate in. So when we talk about louche, we're not just talking about all the demonic rituals and all this sort of things. We're talking about a hijacking of our mind our will and our emotions, a stirring up of our emotions and our feelings, and usually the more negative. But when you look at music and the music that we're listening to and the things that get us hypercharged and the kind of music we listen to when when we're getting psyched up for a workout, you know, these things that we know are going to have an influence on us. When our when our brain is producing dopamine and it's spitting it out and we're getting a charge out of it. Uh, this is is getting to to the to sort of the beginnings of this concept of louche. Now, with louche, it is typically negative emotion that they're looking for, or I would actually say 
powerful human emotion because there is some really, really powerful human emotions that aren't necessarily bad in context. So yes, of course, they want the anger. They want the fear. This is why 99% of what you see when you're going to watch the news, whether it's a conservative channel, a liberal channel, it doesn't matter if it's alternative news or it's a truth telling channel. If it can, if there are millions of people tuning into this stuff every day and they flip off that radio or they, they turn off that device and in the back of their mind, they're afraid of the future. They're afraid for their family. They're afraid their electricity is going to go out. They're afraid their food's going to run out. They're afraid they're not going to get health care. They're afraid that, you know, the mark of the beast is coming. If you, if you multiply that by the millions of people a day watching and listening to the same things, you're creating this energy of fear. And we can get into all of the occult aspects of how fear, murder, lust, rage, all that kind of stuff can is actually what the occultists use to open up portals to communicate with the demon world. Uh, because that's sort of like the invitation. That's the magnet. The loosh is what draws these things. That's why when I talk to the people with sleep paralysis, I say that that fear that you have when you see that thing standing by your door, that is a form of invitation. That fear is drawing that thing over the threshold. It, that is like a pheromone to these things. So if you want these things to be in your vicinity, if you want to communicate with them, if you want to astral project, if you want to read someone's fortune, or if you want to dominate the world, you have to create an atmosphere in which these things will come. We do the same thing as Christians. When we go to church, why do we start our services with worship? And we, we're, we're, we're creating an atmosphere in that building, a space where we have time to worship. We have time to, you know, repent our, of our sins and get our hearts right before God and then we hear the reading of the word, because what is our hope? Every time we go to church, our hope is that the Holy Spirit will land on us and that we will learn something new or that will bear fruit or that we will be benefited or edified by it in some way. So it's not that much of a stretch to say that the occultists are doing the same thing. They're preparing the space before they communicate with the spirits that they're calling down. And we know as Christians, there are times when the Holy Spirit shows up. We feel him. There, there is a different energy in the room. And sorry to use a new age buzzword. There's a different, you know, when the Holy Spirit has showed up. They're doing the same thing. They are creating a space for these things to show up. But these things like blood and torment. Uh, why Molech? Why is so much of this about child sacrifice? Uh, they... They love the, the destruction of what God has made and the innocent and the more pure, the better. So a lot of this stuff sounds crazy, but even when we're sitting around watching a movie where we are vicariously not offended and in some sense enjoying vicariously watching other human beings slaughter each other and, and fornicate, we are taking the first steps of creating an atmosphere of invitation. Oh, I totally agree. <clears throat> and I can't remember the name of this movie, but they've made reels on it repeatedly and you see them all over social media. And it's uh, the guy that's bald headed and short from princess bride. He's sitting at a table with this guy and the guy's, you know, he's uh, 
I can't remember his name now, but, or even the movie, but they're sitting there having a conversation and basically it's kind of like a red pill conversation. He's like, yeah, nothing is as it seems, you know, in New York, uh, New York, everybody talks about leaving New York, but they never leave New York because, uh, it's this psychosis where they're proud of this prison that they've made, but it's a prison that they can't leave. And they're not only are they the builders, they are the, uh, the inmates, they are also the guards of this prison they've built. And he talked about this uh, uh, man that he had met, and they were, you know, bouncing ideas off of each other. And he said that, yeah, I've turned off the television, I've turned off the radio, and I've been happier and healthier, and even my, my joints, I don't hurt or ache. And he was talking about how they throw out all this scare tactic stuff and fear tactic stuff to get everybody worked up and and basically just like you were talking about to feed off this negative energy like a like an echo chamber and nothing is new as under the sun and we do you're right we get caught up thinking about all these archaic blood rituals well look at child sacrifice it's been modernized to and been called parent planthood or parent planned parenthood you know, it's just a modern version of, of child sacrifice. And you talk about television. Well, look at the name. Tell a vision. You know, everything has just been modernized. And and ever since I read that chapter in your book, it does. It just kind of cracks that door open. And you can look and you can see everything with a new lens and a new perspective. And it's it's everywhere. But one of the I pulled up this quote because I know there's, I, there's some Star Wars uh, guys and gals out there. And uh, who remembers the uh, famous quote from Yoda? And coincidentally, for those that don't know, who was it, Alistair Crowley, that wrote about in his book that he uh, uh, would call forth this little green goblin, and they called it the Wisdom Yoda? But Yoda's quoted in that book talking about this very thing that we're talking about today, and he says, Fear is the path to the dark side. Fear leads to anger. Anger leads to hate. Hate leads to suffering. And he says, I sense much fear in you. <laughs> They're just giving it away. That That's the whole formula right there. Yep. Yeah. And I just want to add a couple uh, punctuation marks, what you just said too, with the television, uh, what we're doing right now, we're broadcasting, um, mm-hmm. casting, spell casting. And so we can use these mediums for good. The mediums in and of themselves are not evil. It's just wires and silicone and, you know, uh, you know, frequencies and things like that. But we, we can cast our vision of the gospel as far as we want as well. But uh, it's interesting, these, these words. And if anyone is interested in sort of a uh, non-biblical but extremely philosophical take on the medium um, and how they're used, uh, Neil Postman uh, wrote uh, uh, Amusing Ourselves to Death, and it was an amazing book. I think he wrote it back in the 80s, and what's phenomenal about it is he is writing about the future of America, which we are now living in, and the only medium he was speaking of was the television because there was no smartphone, there was no social media, there was no internet. He died before any of those things even came into existence, and so we are on an accelerated path of where Postman predicted we would be. And just the effect that these mediums would have on us individually and culturally and globally and how it was going to really 
you know, we talk about transhumanism all the time and we're going to turn into AI and we're going to, the internet of things, and we're going to, you know, be integrated in with machines. But even just this hive mind that we now have on social media, where everybody's looking at the same memes and talking about the same things around the water cooler, we already have that the beginnings of a loss of what it means to be human. We already have a bit of this hive mind going on. And talk about mind control. Everybody thinks of MK Ultra and like the swirly eyeballs and you know all of the things that we've read about MK Ultra. But if you even just observe the conversations that you have on a regular basis, you know, you know those, you know those uh, YouTube videos, Justin. Have you seen them where they're trying to prove that everything's scripted and they have every single newscaster all over the United States all reading from the same teleprompter and they're all reading the same news story? And this is kind yeah. of this is like the way of saying like, look at we're being mind controlled. But what's fascinating to me is. I can go to any state. I can talk to any of my friends from anywhere in the country. I can go to church. I can go to a secular place. There's about 12 conversations that I just have over and over and over and over again, all with these same plugged people into that, the echo chamber. that have never met each other. Plugged in. Yeah. And, and you know, what's crazy, Justin, I don't, I mean, I'm a little bit of an introvert, so my brain can get very exhausted and drained and tired quickly, but it's gotten to the point where I am so sick of hearing about some of these subjects, even though I believe what's being said is true and I agree with it. I am so sick of having the same conversation with every single person I meet. It's like Groundhog Day. And I'm about, yeah. I some days I feel like I might actually be mentally unstable if I have to have this conversation one more time. Why don't, why can't we, why doesn't this person over here want to talk about a book they're reading? How come this person doesn't want to talk about something that happened in their childhood? Everyone, it's almost like people aren't even talking about their own lives anymore. We're talking about all these external things. And it, it makes me think of this really funny line in one of the early episodes of The Office where Kelly, you know, kind of the, the dits in The Office, they had been gone um, on a hiatus or like on some sort of a break. And so they were coming back to the office and they were all getting caught up on what they did over their break. And so everyone's talking about their vacations or the errands that they ran and all that. And they get to Kelly and Kelly's like, oh my gosh, Brad and Angelina got divorced. And she's just like spitting out all this stuff that she read like online. And then Jim or whoever she was talking to says like, well, yeah, but like, what happened to you? What happened in the real world? And she's like, I just told you, you know, it's something to that effect. I, I know I'm butchering it, but the whole world is becoming like this. Everything's a movie quote. Everything's is, is a, you're borrowing it from someone else. And uh, I have a couple friends from my past where I would say things and they'd be like, what movie is that from? And I'm like, I'm just talking. I'm not quoting a movie. I'm just, I'm just saying what I'm, is in my head and it is getting so personally frustrating for me, Justin, because I do feel like in some sense we are already dealing with the transhuman population because these people are checked out mentally. They're just uh, spinning back the internet. I don't know if you've hung around with a lot of young people, but I've had the opportunity in the last 10 years to you know, be in a car or in a room or a situation where everyone, like I'm the oldest one there and it's just kids. And by kids, you know, I mean, 
twenties, thirties. Right. And I will watch as like boyfriends and girlfriends sit side by side with each other, scrolling through social media. And the only conversation they have for hours is look at this. Ha 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 ha. Look at this. Ha 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 ha. They're not even facing each other. And so when you talk about louche, it's important to understand that we're seeing this every single day. You don't have to be in a generational Satanist family. You don't have to be part of a militarized special ops program. Uh, You don't have to be uh, uh, fitted with Elon Musk's neural lace. This has already kicked in. And all of the energy that we are, they are collecting from us as we're on our black screens all day long, being titillated by all of the little things that we're watching and laughing at and, and, and all that. They, they aren't just gathering algorithms. They aren't just gathering information. They are also gathering a collective energy of all of the strife, the anxiety, the fear, the lust that is being garnished as people close in on themselves in these little New York prisons of their own making, in their own bedrooms, in their own homes, in their own kitchens. And uh, they are actually altering our reality through this. What's going on, guys? Thanks for listening to the Prometheus Lens podcast. I ask that if you've got anything out of this show so far and you're already subscribed, please share us with a friend. Give us a rating on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. That helps us to grow the show, get to new listeners, but it also helps us get better guests. Because a lot of times I send out emails to people and they check us out. And if we don't have a lot of good ratings and things like that, they won't even bother emailing me back. So anything you guys can do to help, I appreciate it. And if you're not a member of our members only group, I encourage you to do so. There's a lot of extra content on there. You get early access to episodes, uh, private chats, members-only videos, and episodes. It's a great community. Join the band of brothers on this hero's journey. Oh, I agree. And and, uh, one illustration I wanted to use, because I know not everybody is uh, from the South, but have you ever been to a pig roast? I have a long, long time ago. Yeah, they put the pig in the ground and the beer's on ice. You know, that's what Hank Williams was talking about. Well, for those that don't know what that is, you know, or even been there to do the prep work, this louche idea comes into effect. Because when you go to a, a pig roast, they have a live pig. They, they slaughter the pig on site. They field dress it and they dig a hole, fill, fill it with coals, set it on fire, get it heated up, put the pig into the ground and it, it cooks. And then while it's cooking, you're hanging out by the fire, having a few beers, telling tall tales and just, you know, hanging out. And then when the pig is done, you pull it out, you clean it off and everybody has pulled pork or whatever. And it's just a, you know, just a all night thing. You hang out. Some people even nail the pig's head up on the uh, a tree somewhere. <laughs> it's according to where you go. But what was fascinating was I remember one of the first ones I remember, my dad had the pig in the trailer and he had a little twenty two pistol. And, that, and of course, I was like, you're not going to kill that pig with that little twenty two pistol. He's like, you know, he's a lot of people uh, 
misunderstand the 22. He said, this is a very powerful gun. He said, you have to hit the hog right between the eyes above the forehead. He said, there's a soft plate. He said, if you shoot it anywhere else, he said, it's not going to go through and kill it. He said, but there's a certain spot that's a soft spot that'll go right through and kill it instantly. He said, the key, he said, is to let it sit there for a while, get calm. He said, then, he said, go in, pet it, feed it, do whatever. He said, but you want to pull it, that gun out unexpectedly while it's looking down and relaxed and hit it in that soft spot and kill it instantly. He said, because if you don't, he said, you'll have to shoot it again. He said, and when you shoot it the first time and don't kill it, he said, it induces all kinds of stress uh, hormones. He said, and what happens, he says, all the meat uh, hardens and tightens and, and uh, it ruins the meat. He said, and, and, and if you've ever been to a hog roast where, if you've been to a good one and a bad one, you'll know it because when the meat hardens, not only is it hardened, it gives it this gamey, that's the only way I can describe it, taste. It kind of ruins the meat, honestly. And so this is the same effect, you know, when you are giving off your energies or, you know, in this analogy, the farmer, the person killing the pig is the, the powers that be. They're wanting you to be relaxed and eating that feed and giving off the, the right uh, hormones that they want. And then they'll slip, slip in and get you when you're not looking. But that was just a little analogy that popped in my head that I could maybe show some people to give a little context or new perception of it. <laughs> yeah, that's a great analogy. And since we've sort of now um, slid over onto the side where we're kind of talking now about the animal world as well, uh, I'd like to kind of go into this other branch of the discussion and I'm just warning people, you're going to think, what in the world does this have to do with Louche? Why in the world is this important? And there, I'm going to I'm going to say this up front so that you understand. This is why it's important for Christians to talk about stuff like this. Uh, I'm going to go back to our, our, our friend Gary Wayne. He says that all things continually lead back to serpents, dragons, fairies, Nephilim, and fallen angels. All things. And yeah. so... The reason why sometimes it's important to talk about obscure mythologies and monsters and creatures and weird things is I don't care if it's presented to us as fiction or lore or mythology or entertainment. These things are all based on antediluvian realities. These, these are, this is another generation's history. This is another generation's oral testimony and it's fallen out of our, our understanding and so the reason why it's important is because the people of God are perishing for lack of knowledge. And so some of this stuff seems like, are we tripping a little too close to, to those verses that talk us to not even talk about what the evil people do in secret? There's a way to talk about what they do in secret, and there's a way not to talk about it. And so the purpose of exposing some of this stuff is exactly like what you were just talking about, Justin. We don't want people to be lulled to sleep. And when these things show up again in whatever form they choose to show up, I want people to recognize, even if it looks completely different in our generation, I want them to recognize this is the serpent of our generation. This is the dragon of our generation. This is the fairy of our generation. 
because these things, they know how to put on new costumes and they know how to reinvent yep. themselves, but it's the same, the same stuff. So same characteristics I, every time, same characteristics every time. So I want to go into some of the cryptozoology aspects of the louche. So I'll give you just a quick, quick little grammar lesson. And this is in the book too. Uh, the word louche, some believe go back to the French word louche, which is spelled different. That's an O-U-C-H-E ending. And it had a literal and a figurative meaning. Uh, the, the literal meaning was one-eyed or squinty eye. So like if someone was like looking at you strange, it was an adjective. But if someone um, was looking at you sideways, that, that was like known as, as the, the, the louche. But then it had a figurative sense because a lot of times when people get that squinty look on their face, they're, they're devious. And so then it took on this figurative meaning that louche was ascribed to people who were, were devilish and, and who were shady, you know, squinty eyed. So that came from the Latin and the Latin meant one eyed. So this now gets into Helena Blavatsky and her cyclopean eye the third eye, the pineal gland, the mind's eye. And here's where we don't all understand the, the, the proper definition of cyclops. When we think of cyclops, we think of Greek mythology and we think of like the big like dumb oaf monster with the one eyeball in the center. A cyclopean eye does not mean one eye. It means one eye in addition to the two. And so what it's talking about there is the third eye. It's not talking about three eyes or some sort of a, a deformity. It's talking about those who have had a Kundalini awakening. The serpent has uncoiled. They've had an awakening. They are the enlightened ones. They're enlightened. They're in touch with the Atlantean forefathers and they have this knowledge. So that goes back to Enoch. The watchers gave us arcane knowledge and the mysteries of heaven. That's what, that's so that is like the the etymology of this word lusca is what it is in um the latin the lusca l u s c a well interestingly lusca has been adopted in the field of cryptozoology to is the name given to one of these mythological cryptid creatures so i want to read just a little bit of this cuz i don't want you to lose uh where we're going with this um, so in cryptozoology, and this is specifically some creatures that were cited off of the Caribbean. So this is kind of like, you know, the Loch Ness monster kind of stuff in the, in the, in the, in the Caribbean. So the Lusca is said to grow over 75 feet long or even 200 feet long, but no, but no cases have been proven of other octopus species growing up to even half these lengths. To attack properly on the surface, this octopus would have to have one tentacle on the seafloor to balance itself. That would mean that if such accounts are even real, it would have to take place in relatively shallow water, if they're short, right? Uh, it is sometimes described as half shark, half octopus, and occasionally it is described as a half octopus and half a beautiful woman with hair so long it tangles around its victims before its tentacles drag it down. 
Although the general identification of the Lusca is with the colossal octopus, it has also been described as either a multi-headed monster, a dragon-like creature, or some kind of evil spirit. Now, I'm going to go in several very uh, specific directions with this, but just to put it on the table and then I'll, I'll let you comment. In cryptozoology, they are telling us that there's this mythological creature that doesn't exist. It's a giant octopus. It might be an evil spirit. And they call it the Lusca, which is the Latin word where we get our word loosh. So, and uh, when you just talking about that, uh, the imagery that was popping up in my mind was the, what was it? Disney. Uh, the, uh, what was her name? The, the mermaid. Okay. The evil woman that oh, she was the, half woman, half octopus. Ursula. Yes. Ursula. There you go. There you go. Yeah. I thought of Ursula. And then uh, a few years back, I seen some crazy sci-fi movie where there was an octopus that could telepathically talk to people. And there was like some kind of a cult going on with this thing. And uh, but yeah, that was like two images that, that popped in my head. Yeah. And and I was trying to remember, which I should have been Googling while you was reading, but you just had me captivated. Um, it was somewhere in scripture where it talks about the wire of the, of the, the winking one or something like that, or one who blinks with one eye. Oh, very nice. Very nice. I'm I wonder if have that's to... like a hat, a hat tip to the, to what you were talking about. Yeah. The Leviathan, perhaps I'm going to check into that. And I don't know if you've seen these posts on social media too, but now, and I think that this is complete and utter programming. Now there's all of these memes with pictures and video of the octopuses and they're being called aliens. And they're making this comparison that the octopus must be some sort of leftover from some sort of alien race because it doesn't act in conjunction with the rest of nature. And then they have all these reasons why that. And as soon as I saw that, because of the research I did, I said, they are prepping us for what we're, what we're about to get into. All of this ties in. We're not going to just be talking about octopuses here. This ties in with the luge. So this octopus creature, the first thing I thought of when I read about the Lusca was Cthulhu. So for people who are, um, familiar with H.P. Lovecraft, Call of Cthulhu. It is basically, in a nutshell, uh, these sailors who are out to sea and a creature rises from the deep. And it is this indescribably evil, ugly, Medusa-like character with this octopus-like head with all of these tentacles. And if you look at him, you freeze, you turn to stone, you die, something to that effect. And they, they lost their minds. And so they came back loony, you know, and this again is, we see this in our own culture. If you've been abducted by an alien or you've had sleep paralysis or schizophrenic, you know, so they come back loony and uh, they write down a description and draw a picture of this thing and they, they hide it away and they, they die in infamy. And then the nephew of one of these sailors finds this thing and he's mortified by it. And he, he, he goes mad and all this stuff. And, but the, the creature that rises from the depths of the sea that in essence wants, you know, to one day 
come back and reclaim all that is his, that he'll rise from the sea and people will go mad. But this thing has the head of an octopus. Now, this is really strange. If I was going to sit down and write a horror story, I could think of things more grotesque or frightening than like some dude with a squid on his head, right? I mean, I've always sort of, I really enjoyed The Call of Cthulhu because Lovecraft was a brilliant prose writer and the sentences are structured very beautifully. He definitely knows how to weave a tale, but it's just like, where is he getting this weird creature from? And nothing new under the sun. So one thing with uh, Lovecraft is, as his biographers all all share, he wrote from his dream renderings, as they call it. But if you actually read these biographies and you study Lovecraft, and he was kind of a strange bird, he basically astral projected, and he was up there at night, and these stories were dictated to him by some sort of a familiar spirit guide, ascended master, whatnot. And he would come back and he would have to fill in some gaps. And the the people that get things dictated to them, unless they're doing automatic writing where it's all being filled in for them, you know, it, it reminds me a lot. This is a, I, I'm not trying to be sacrilegious here, but there were a lot of prophets in scripture who wrote down their prophecies and they had no idea what the heck they were talking about. They, they just didn't know it was beyond their knowledge. John saw things on Patmos that he, he didn't understand. He's, he's, he's struggling for words. And so Lovecraft, it would be the same thing. He would wake up and he would write these things down, but he would have to fill in gaps because things didn't logically make sense to him. And so his stories are not of his own creation. They were, they were dictated to him, so to speak. So why are there enlightened beings in the astral realm that want people with, with literary ability to write mythologies about world dominating spirit beings that have octopus heads? I mean, this is just, this is silly. So we're going to delve into that. And I'm going to tell you where this is being taken and the, the way it's being presented to us in the 21st century and to our generation. But I want to give you a, a chance to jump in there in case you've got something before I go on a tangent. <laughs> but that reminds me of uh, Stephen King. You know, I've always heard that uh, he was on anti-psychotropics and stuff like that and that he could not write while he was taking his medication and whether this is true or not, you know how rumors are, but I'd always heard that he would stop taking his medication and go to some like cabin somewhere in the woods away from everybody. And that's where he would write like his best novels. Mm. So it's almost like, you know, maybe the medication was blocking his uh, communication with the spirit realm or his spirit guide, even if it was unbeknownst to him. Yes. And he would come off these medications and boom, he'd start getting all these great horror film ideas. And that's where he would write all of his stuff. Yes, absolutely. I, I did a lot of research about 10 or 15 years ago and it was fascinating. It was all of the highly influential inventors and writers and things that would astral project in order to get their innovations or their writing ideas. And I cannot remember which individual it was. Uh, it could have been Poe, but 
but I actually think it was Edison of all bizarre things, right? Uh, but don't quote me because I cannot remember who it was, but they, this particular person would go into his library, which had a hardwood floor, and he would sit on a chair and he would fall asleep. And I don't know if he would do anything to sedate himself or to get into kind of that heavy altered state of consciousness or whatever, but he would, you know, prepare himself for, for the, the astral experience. But because many people, whether you willingly or unwillingly get pulled into the astral, even for people who have done it for many years and are used to it, nobody likes that sleep paralysis portion or as people who do psychedelics or ayahuasca will say that they'll explain it as before you get into the enlightened part with the payoff, there's a death of self. And it's kind of this portal you have to go through where you're terrorized and the demons show up. So nobody kind of likes the, everybody wants to get to the final destination, but they don't like the, the winding path through the dark woods that they have to take to get there. So this guy would sit in his chair and he would put, he would take a lead ball. He would hold a lead ball in his hand and he'd put his elbow on the arm of the chair and he would hold the lead ball over the side of the chair and then he would let his head drift back and he would fall asleep and he would go into these renderings. And the, the theory was that he would get just enough, you know, information. He would get in there and ask his questions or, or whatever. And then when he fell from that altered state of consciousness into the REM or into the deep sleep, into the deeper stages of sleep, he would go limp and his arm would fall and the lead ball would hit the hardwood floor and wake him up. So it would rescue him, you know, kind of from the, the, the tormenting parts of it. But this was something that a lot of 18th and 19th and 20th century influencers were well aware of. And when you look at some of the literature, the science advancements in medicine, in philosophy, in religion, in spiritism, that are to this day part of public school and college curriculum. It's still part of medical training. Uh, it's still part of philosophy classes. A lot of these men and women that we revere as sort of these great uh, geniuses, they were card-carrying theosophists and they were uh, astral projectors. And it's not secret. You can go online. They would talk all about it. And uh, these these people who are to this day shaping our culture and shaping the seven liberal sciences were, were getting their information from otherworldly entities in the astral realm. How is this different from the watchers coming down and sharing the mysteries of heaven with man, which they were, were used to ultimately destroy man? The only difference is location. They basically figured out that they're not allowed to come down anymore because they're going to get in big trouble. So they have figured out a way to woo us up to them. And once we get up there, it's just a continuation of what was going on in the antediluvian times. They've just moved their classroom to a different location. I, mean, I totally agree. And it's like the predictive programming or even uh, desensitizing the people. And I'm not one of these, you know, there's some people out there and it, it does, it, it frustrates me. Like when you see people that look at crystals or just elements that have healing properties or whatever. If a Christian has a, a 
a salt rock lamp in their bedroom, you're practicing witchcraft. <laughs> yeah. It's like, come on, man. It's God created an element, a tool, and it has properties for good use. Mm-hmm. Why would you not use something that God creates for your benefit? God creates things. Satan does not create anything. Satan perverts created things. And I think that's what Paul was talking about. You know, they traded the truth for a lie. They worshiped the created things instead of the creator. And, but when you get into the, the crystals and the elements, the, the problem is, is when you take God out of the picture and you worship the created thing. But when you get into to yoga, and I've heard some people say, you know, well, yoga, that's, you know, worshiping the devil. That's, you know, this new agey stuff. It's like a hammer. You can take a hammer and build a great house, or you can take a hammer and destroy everything around you. It's it's whose hand that it's in and how you use that tool is the end result. But you do, you see people doing the, the, the yoga, the meditation. What are they doing? They're sitting there with their legs crossed and holding their fingers and humming, getting themselves in that state like you talked about, getting prepared for the receiving of, of spirits and, and energies and whatever, you know, verbiage you want to attach to it. But they are, it's kind of like a, a softening of the ground for the, for the plan to, to land on. Absolutely. Absolutely. Something I've been hearing a lot in the last few years as um, is when Christians will be talking about a particular topic and they'll say, you know, we're going to redeem this. Um, back. And I understand things like that. Like take the rainbow, for example, that's been hijacked. We know what that, that's a, that's a sign of a covenant. And we know who created that rainbow. We know what it means. And that was stolen from us. And I understand like, let's redeem the rainbow. Uh, Another thing could be uh, the Maseroth, the, the map of the stars. We know from Genesis one, that the sun, the moon, and the stars were created, not just for light, but to send messages. Now there are messages about the redempt, the unfolding of redemptive history. They, they tell the story of Jesus Christ, not us and our future, but that was taken and it was turned into astrology. Uh, but let's redeem that back because part of our inability to know the times that we're living in is because we don't know how to read the messages that he has put up there uh, to, to begin with. And now that's why we have so much chaos and confusion. Every Christian in the world, every day, it's the end of the world. It's the end of the world. It's the end of the world. Uh, I've been around a little, I've been around a little while, half a century. And I can tell you that from the 1970s, I have been involved in churches where the end is around the corner. It, the end 99 of, was, reasons. Oh gosh. I mean, it, it was the end of the world in the seventies. Uh, oh man. And Jimmy Carter was going to blow it and Nixon and all this stuff. And, you know, then in the eighties, you had the cold war and it was going to be the end of all of it. And then the nineties, oh, Bill Clinton's the antichrist. And every decade that I've been alive, I've spent the whole decade listening to Christians say it is it is the end. And a lot of that chaos and confusion, a lot of the reason why Christians think every day is the end of the world is because they don't know how to read the Maseroth. They've lost touch with it. We, we're perishing for lack of knowledge. If we knew how to read the Maseroth, we, we might be able to have a nice life and just enjoy a day, right? So there's things that need to be redeemed that have been stolen from us. And then what happens is, the enemy's version becomes so tainted that 
that Christians are like, I'm never touching that. And they don't even necessarily understand the biblical origins of it. But then there's other things where I've seen that people are trying to redeem things that never belong to the Lord to begin with. And that's where I, I get nervous. And that's why I tell people, our job as Christians isn't to redeem every single practice on planet Earth. It's to redeem back what's been stolen from us. And there's some things that the church is taking and letting into its doors that never belong to us to begin with. It's okay sometimes when they knock at the church doors with the Trojan horse to say, we don't want that thing in our lobby. And I agree. And and I, I've seen, you know, certain sects of Christianity and and people that that really go to the extreme you know on the good things and also the the bad things but one thing i think is kind of frustrating is the total how would how do you word this uh disregard for intent intent is key and intent is important and we're talking about the creator of the universe that created you knows your every thought but they get hung up like christmas for example december mm -hmm. the 25th you know mithra and, and all these you know dying resurrecting sun gods and uh, i'm not celebrating christmas because that that's pagan you know and all this stuff if, if you go back far enough everything like you know like we talked about with gary wayne everything goes back to fallen angels nephilim and, and pagan the occult so if you avoided all of those things with pagan roots or satanic roots or, or, or corrupted truths, whatever, you know, once again, whatever verbiage you want to put on it, you would be locked in the basement of your house and never get out into the real world unless you're just a hypocrite and you just want to call all these things out and then do them anyway. Yeah. And I think that's even worse, but that's not what the Bible tells us to do, you know, we're to go out and be the light in the darkness. You may have the brightest flashlight in the world. And if you have Christ, you do. Mm. But it's doing no good to the world if you're keeping it locked in your closet because you're afraid of the boogeyman and all the pagan roots of everything. Mm -hmm. Yeah, There's absolutely. no way you can be accidentally pagan. <laughs> exactly. Well, I think this is where we get into some of those gray areas where uh, you know, there's that verse that says, if anyone um, thinks in their own heart that something is sin, for him, it is sin. You know, and there are hundreds of, of things in that gray area where the spirit of God will convict a, a person or a family. We are not going to shop at this store ever again. We are not going to give money to Walt Disney. Like we, there's people that are very convicted over that and they... They're not foisting it on other people necessarily. They're not making it a salvation issue, but they feel convicted. But there's going to be other very godly families who love Jesus with their whole heart that aren't going to think it's a big deal if they shop at Target or buy a Disney movie. And that's where we really have to show each other grace because I think as long as the root is, I'm going to root out everything in my life that entangles or that tempts or that weighs me down. And that's going to look a lot different than the things that weigh you down and tempt and entangle you. I mean, there's things that, that I say or do or listen to on a daily basis that it's just in one ear, not the other, but it would cause great temptation and, and, and sorrow for somebody else. You know, I know Christians that can, this is a good example. 
I, I know Christians that can listen to secular music and I know ones that will boycott every last one of it. They won't listen to anything, but you know, uh, that, that kind of thing has to do with our knowing where our, our hearts lie and our treasures lie. And I, I had a pastor once who would never, ever, ever drive a new car because he was afraid that that part in him would take over where he would become materialistic. You know, he knew that he couldn't handle a big, shiny, expensive car. So he always drove these beaters. But where it got complicated is the people then around him that did drive the bright, fancy, brand new, expensive cars. It was sort of assumed that they must be materialistic. And there's, there are guys out there that can drive an expensive car and it means nothing to them. Uh, there's a lot of, I know a lot of women that drive brand new cars because they don't want to be on the side of the road at the mercy of any guy with a tire iron, you know? And so there's all these gray areas. Uh, and I think we, we really have to do a better job at, at showing grace to one another on these things, because for some people, uh, going to secular concerts, no big deal. Other people, I can't do that. It's tied into my past. I used to show up at these things and smoke pot and get drunk. And so we just don't know. Not everything that triggers us is going to trigger other people. But uh, to, to your point, I, I used to say to people, I have friends that were boycotting everything. And, and I said, and it's not that I don't boycott stuff, Justin, there's things like there's lines that I'm like, I'm not giving my money. I don't choose to give my money to you when I can get it somewhere else. But if we were going to boycott everything that had some sort of an affiliation with someone who hated Jesus Christ, we would live naked in a field drinking rainwater and eating bugs. I mean, everything is, there's no way of tracking down with, with all of the things that we have in our home that I don't know if some Satan worshiper helped, you know, make the pickups on my guitar or, you know, the buttons on my shirt. I don't know. There's no way of, of, of mitigating that. There's no way to hold to that boycotting stance without being a hypocrite because everything is, is tainted by the world. I, I think that's why when Christ comes back, everything's going to be destroyed because in order to take the fingerprints of Satan and all of his symbols and his emblems and the traditions, the only way to get rid of all of it is to just start over. Yeah. The true great reset exactly exactly yes 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 right so well, you got anything else for us Vic? yeah you know i i had some other things that i was going to go into but i i don't know that it, it's even necessary there there's so much stuff attached to this uh this luska and this loose you know what i would tell people is uh put your antennas up for anything in the media that is uh got a theme of energy draining, whether it's a piece of technology or whatever, uh, the octopus, the, the, um, an, another tie into modern culture that people can be looking for. They're definitely trying to get this into the, the, the collective conscience also attached to the Luska is, um, the mind flayer. The mind flayer, which is not accurately portrayed in Stranger Things, uh, some some media portrays the mind flayer as like an arachnid or a spider-like creature, 
or if you go into Slumberland or the the Japanese anime version, which is a little Nemo and adventures in Slumberland, that's more of a maritime. So their underworld is a sea theme. So the sea version, which can be Lovecraft or it can be, then it's a big giant black squid or a black octopus. Anytime you see these spider tentacle leg octopus kind of themes, and it's some sort of a, the Nightmare King is what it's called in Slumberland and uh, Cthulhu, the Mind Flayer. I think in Dungeons and Dragons, it's called the Elithids. These are humanoid creatures with octopus heads. They, they worship the elder brain, who is the collective brain of every Elithid who has passed away. And they, it's a hive mind. So all these themes that we're getting with the hive minds and the elder brains and these elithids and mind flayers, this is all connected and it's connected to the louche. Uh, these mind flayers uh, eat human brains. That's how they, they survive. Now we're into the zombie lore. Mm. It's, it's all connected. Zombies, elithids, mind flayers, Cthulhu, Luskas, louche, octopus, Loch Ness, all this stuff. Everything continually leads back to serpents, dragons, fairies, Nephilim, fallen angels. And you see it in your Bible if you know how to look for it. And I like, uh, we talked to Dr. Judd Burton a while back and he said, you know, it's a, it's a linguistic archaeology. Oh, so I love if that. you know how to break down the, the root meanings and things like this and look at the different languages, it's going to open up whole new pathways that you've never seen before. Yes. You know, when you look into the, the Nephilim giants, you know, the Anakim, I think he was talking about that the, the root words and all that with, with that word was basically uh, like long neck drinkers of the blood or, or something like that. And it was like, so he was drawing parallels to like, you know, the vampires or the drinking of the blood. Why was they drinking the blood? Because there's power in the blood, the louche. And then you get into the commandments of God. You're to not drink the blood. You're not to eat meat with the life force in it. But why? Because there was people doing it. Why was those people doing it? You know, and then you get into the whole 2020 election QAnon, you know, conspiracy stuff. They were talking about, you know, all these people are staying youthful and young because they're capturing orphan and abandoned children and torturing them till their fear is heightened and draining their blood and drinking it. Whether that's true or not, I mean, that, that's just, you know, what was going around. And it's... Mm -hmm. It's the same story just told throughout time in different languages and different contexts. So it's like I'm the type of person, I'm not a, a coincidence theorist. If I hear the same story told throughout history and throughout many tongues and nations and, and creeds, there must be something to it. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. And Gary Wayne does a great job of going all the way back into antediluvian times and talking about these these dragon courts and these brotherhoods and these snake brotherhoods and all of the, the blood drinking cults of Kish and the star fire and the quickening. These are all just the repetition of new ways of saying it in each and every generation of the drinking of blood for the purposes of power and immortality. Yes. Well, Vicki, thank you for coming to talk to us. It's uh as I promised in the beginning of the show, this was an enlightening conversation. And I'll give you a little loosh. 
<laughs> well, let everybody know where they can uh, find your stuff, uh, find you on your uh, socials. Give everybody a plug where they can find all your fascinating content. Absolutely. You can find me at VickiJoyAnderson.com, and you can contact me through there as well. You can get me on Instagram, VickiJoyAuthor. You can contact me there as well. Uh, the book, They Only Come Out at Night, is exclusively on LAMarzuli.net. And you can also find my articles on realdarknews.com. Sweet. Yeah, thanks again, Vicki. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Justin. Well, there you have it. Author, poet, podcaster, and independent researcher, and so much more, Vicki Joy Anderson. It's always a pleasure to sit down with her. Never fails. Every time. I sit down with this woman she blows my mind she's just down to earth relatable and it's impossible not to have a good time when you sit down with this woman so Vicki if you are listening to this thank you once again for sitting down and just uh, blowing all of our minds if you enjoyed this show please share it with a friend help spread the love and the news and once again thank you for joining me on this hero's journey And as always, until next time, torches high.